cookies. They're hands-on. There's a lot of technique involved in them. They're really fun and easy to do with kids. They bake quickly and they're perfect for gift giving any time of year and they're great. From WFIU, I'm Kate Young and this is a winter holiday special with Earth Eats. Coming up in the next hour, we drop in on a cookie baking workshop with kids, we enjoy a hot cup of coffee on a chilly bike ride, and we toast up a batch of maple granola for holiday gift giving. All that just ahead, plus chestnuts. Stay with us. Thanks for tuning in to the Earth Eats Winter Holiday Special. I'm Kate Young. Making cookies is a great thing to do with kids of all ages. You can keep it simple or you can go all out. And even the youngest children can pour a cup of flour into a bowl or cut a shape from some rolled out cookie dough. Georgia O'Connor and Alyssa Weiss are nutrition and youth educators at Mother Hubbard's Cupboard in Bloomington, Indiana. The Hub, as the locals call it, is a food pantry and community food resource center that offers gardening and cooking workshops for children and adults. They've got a spacious teaching kitchen, and one year they offered a special pre-holiday cookie baking workshop just for kids. About 10 young bakers and a handful of parents lined the edges of the tall metal tables in the classroom. They had rolling pins, baking sheets, and measuring cups at each station. They taught three different recipes with some of the steps done ahead of time to move things along. So we're gonna start by making the modern sugar cookie. To save time, we made the dough ahead, but this is a very basic cookie recipe, and we'll send it home with you. Alyssa taught the pinwheel recipe, which included specific skills and techniques. We're going to start by measuring our chocolate. We need two ounces of chocolate, so we're going to use our scale, and we're going to measure out two ounces. use a double boiler. Has anyone used a double boiler before? And then we're going to put a pot on top. Did everyone get a chance to see the water? They accomplished a lot in those two hours, and by the end of the class, each family went home with freshly baked cookies, plus some dough and instructions for finishing at home. All right, what are the favorites? Peanut butter? One, two, three. After the smoke cleared and the interns were finishing the last of the dishes, I sat down with the two instructors. My name is Georgia O'Connor, and I am the youth educator here at Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. What was happening in here today? A lot of kids baking a lot of cookies. Kids with their hands in the dough and kids using their hands to mix up cookie dough, rolling cookie dough, learning new techniques like baking skills such as leveling off and sifting two different ways, whether you use a sifter or a whisk. The order in which you bake things, so dry ingredients separate than wet ingredients. Is this the first time you've done a cookie workshop with kids? Yes, absolutely, the first time. <laughs> so you regularly do cook with kids though, right? Yes, usually we'll do kids cook 4.15 to 5 Tuesdays and Thursdays. 
We usually cook vegetable-based dishes. We do some baking as well, but not as often as we do the vegetable dishes. And that's more of a drop-in program, so it's yes. a little bit quicker, too? Yes. So you wouldn't have time for a big baking project? No, we try to keep the recipes for kids' cook really simple, things that you could duplicate at home quite easily and that kids could actually participate in. We just use fewer ingredients. So this was a little bit of an undertaking. Yes, it was, but it was fun, and I would do it again in a heartbeat. How many cookie recipes did you make today? We made three. We made modern sugar cookies and peanut butter cookies, and then our last was a Chicago pinwheel cookie. Can you tell me anything about the peanut butter cookie recipe? That peanut butter recipe has been around for a long time. I was about 21 years old, and I found it on the back of a Domino's sugar box. (laughs) Wasn't much of a cook then, but I loved that recipe. It was chewy and crisp at the same time, and so it's one of my favorite, and it calls for like a cup of peanut butter, which makes it even better. (laughs) So you've stuck with that all this time. Stuck with it, haven't changed a bit on it, just doubled the batch is all I do, (laughs) double the recipe. Why do you think cookies are a good thing to do with kids? Or either of you can answer that. I love cookies. They're hands-on. There's a lot of technique involved in them. They're really fun and easy to do with kids. They bake quickly, and they're perfect for gift-giving any time of year, and they're great. Could you say your full name? Yes, Alyssa Weiss. I am the education coordinator here at Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. I'm wondering about the pinwheel recipe. Is this something that comes from you? Is this Sure, yeah. I'm from Chicago, and there was an old cookie manufacturing company called Maurice Linnell. One of their cookies that they would make that was a classic was this chocolate and vanilla pinwheel cookie with these red sprinkles around the outside. They were the kind of cookies that you get in the tin with the shortbread cookie with the little cherry in the middle. And they closed down a few years ago, and so the bakery I used to work at kind of brought them back, and it reminds me of Chicago. And so there's a specific color of sprinkles on the outside. Yes. Classic red-pink color. Interesting. (laughs) What is your vision or your goal for what you have in mind when you do a workshop like this with kids? Well, typically our cooking classes with kids are only 45 minutes. And so you can't do a lot in 45 minutes with kids. So one of the reasons was a longer session to do something that would be like we've done a pasta workshop for the kids, and that would take a lot longer than 45 minutes. So that was one of the reasons. We also thought that parents might stick around a little bit more, and they have. They've stuck around and started helping their kids do the cooking as well, and so that makes it kind of fun to have a family-oriented project. So, Okay, so what if somebody says, well, why are you teaching kids how to make these sweets with sugar in them and this isn't very healthy and I just feel like you should be teaching them how to cook with vegetables. We want to use fresh ingredients instead of store-bought cookies. The homemade cookies taste so much better. They're fresher. They don't have all the preservatives and I don't think I've bought a store-bought cookie in several years and part of it is just because I think they taste better and they're better for you. They're just great. And so all of the cooking lessons that happen here, they're not just focused on super healthy eating. Some of it's just about cooking. Yeah, it's about cooking and coming together and building community and using our hands and tasting and kind of associating conversation and community with eating and whole foods. Do you find it challenging to work with large groups of kids like this when you're trying to get everybody to focus on a project? It's the end of the day. They've been in school all day. Like, How is that for you? 
it's bittersweet. I mean, it can get chaotic and you can in your mind be like, oh, whoa, what are we doing here? But then you realize this is kids are enjoying it. They're having a good time. And this is kids having a good time. They are chaotic when they're together in community. So I love it. (laughs) How do you feel about working with a group of kids? Same. I think that it can be hectic, but also very fun. And I also think to add to what Georgia said that do I necessarily think they'll all be able to go home and start a recipe from start to finish? No, but I think it's also about building incremental skills and exposure to it and experience of doing the thing and having fun while doing it. And that is going to create a desire to continue to bake and cook, even if it's not an automatic, I've learned a thing and now I can go do it. It'll be built into their childhood and experience of cooking and baking. The other thing that I was thinking about that so many things that I've been to around the holidays where there's there's like a craft mm. or there's cookie baking in, in Mrs. Claus's workshop and you go in it and it's usually like a store-bought cookie and you decorate it with store-bought icing. And sprinkles maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's your cookie baking. And so just to, to have this chance to do not just one, but three recipes from scratch, all the ingredients. That's kind of a rare thing. Kids don't usually get that kind of experience. It's true. It's fun to build in these other skills that kids have of varying levels and have the kids work together too, which is always great to see an older kid working with a younger kid and learning about measurements and learning about all the other sciences associated with baking. What are some other workshops that you have coming up? Let's see, we have a pie workshop. In January, we're going to do some winter stew workshops. We've done tortillas, popcorn, all sorts of stuff. That was Georgia O'Connor and Alyssa Weiss of Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. You'll find all three of these cookie recipes, the modern sugar, the peanut butter, and the Chicago pinwheel, on the Earth Eats website, eartheats.org. Coming up next, a story about a classic seasonal food, chestnuts, on this winter holiday special from Earth Eats. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping. Until recently, that song was really my only association with chestnuts. But last fall, I had the chance to explore a chestnut grove for myself, right here in Indiana. My neighbor and friend Julia Valiant happens to be a researcher with the Sustainable Food Systems Science Group at Indiana University. She's got an interest in chestnut growers in the Midwest, and she invited me out to a U-Pick orchard to check it out. I'm a sucker for foraging of any kind, really. Mushrooms, berries, persimmon, pawpaw. I almost never have the chance to gather tree nuts. We headed up to Anderson Orchard on a Sunday morning in September. Peak apple picking and pumpkin patch season. 
Even at 9 a.m., the parking lot was filling up and the playground was populated with sweater-clad youngsters and their plaid-flanneled parents. Anderson Orchard is a shining example of agritourism. The place serves as an attractive destination for families to experience all things autumnal and seasonally picturesque. The dwarf apple trees make for easy hand-picking. They have a pumpkin patch where families can pick out their own jack-o'-lanterns for carving. But we were there for the chestnuts. Julia had heard this was the last weekend for those, and we didn't want to miss out. Chestnuts aren't really the main attraction for most visitors to Anderson Orchard. Julia had heard from the owners that folks originally from East Asian countries are the primary customers. We picked up bags from a table at the edge of the orchard and got directions to the nut tree grove. We wanted to find the chestnut trees. Do you know how far back they are? See that great big tree right there? Yeah. They're, if you headed towards that, they're right, you gotta go just down the hill and there's a bunch of them there. Okay. Or you can walk out here. Go to the first road, you can turn, gravel road, you can make a right turn on, and that'll take you to a mosque, so it'll be on your right side. Yeah, if I was walking back there, I would cut right through the trees. Okay, we're going to cut through the trees. Yeah, if that's your shortest way right there. Just keep walking for the big tree. We trudged through the rows of short-statured apple trees laden with perfect-looking fruit. It was difficult to walk past them without picking, but we stayed focused. After about a five-minute walk, the chestnut grove came into view. Next to the tiny apples, the chestnut trees were towering and majestic. Their large branches formed a canopy, a shady sort of tall tunnel. Right away, we saw a couple of women gathering nuts around the bases of the trees. They both wore gloves, and one had a pair of kitchen tongs. We introduced ourselves to Lenine and her mother. Are you finding any? Yeah. Chestnuts? Yeah. Yeah. Um, not we've many, never but... We've never done this before, so we have no idea. Yeah, this is my first time, too. Oh, really? Yeah. <gasps> look so, at all those. That's a lot. Yeah. Okay, so you just look around. Uh, Hi. Yeah, I just May speak I see? Up. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Can you take a picture? Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> you said you can shake the tree, but it's too, too big for us to shake. Funny, yeah, yeah, that seems so. Those branches are too high. Yeah. They drove down from Carmel for the harvest, and we asked how they like to cook the chestnuts. Um, you bake them, or you can make soup. My dad actually make um, well the chickens mix well with chestnuts. Oh. Uh, also beef is good, and but you can just cut it open and put some sugar or honey on the top and put it in the oven. And when it's, when it's pop up, it's very sweet. <laughs> I like the roasted, but my dad already had a plan to make some chicken soup out of it. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is my first time too. Um, my friend came over yesterday, and she said she got a bunch. So I like just just pick whatever on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. I had never seen a chestnut tree. This is my first time. I, I have oh, been okay. always eating this. Because <laughs> yeah. in China, it grow in the mountain area, rural area. I grew up in the cities. And my neighborhood definitely don't, doesn't have those. Yeah. yeah. But um, Which city? 
I think on the east coast or west coast in China, they grow a bunch of this. Mm -hmm. And in the harvest season, it's seasonal. I think it's coming out this until winter time. Then it's gone, and uh, and people just sell them roasted. Yeah. yeah, I like them. Yeah. Yeah, I've only ever had them roasted. I think. Yeah. Americans, European Americans, usually the tradition is just roasting them around Christmas time. Oh, you actually eat this? I saw yeah. American doesn't eat this. Just. Yeah. It's a holiday thing because okay. there's like a Christmas song that has chestnuts roasting. Oh. <laughs> so that's yeah. uh, that, that. That's the only, and I've never had them any other way, really. Yeah. So. Yeah, my dad makes soups. I. Is it just the whole thing? You peel them off, and then put it into the soup, um, and you just kind of cook for a few hours. Then it have some flavor, and ch chestnut itself has very special texture. Uh -huh. So yeah. yeah, it does yeah, have a really unique texture. Yeah, yeah. I could I can picture it in a soup. I just have never had it. Lin <laughs> <laughs> tried to give us some of yeah, what yeah, she harvested, uh -huh. but I assured her we could find some of our own. No, no, no. It's okay. We'll find. She some. tried to insist. Come on, come on. Just take some. We're good, yeah. we're, we're good foragers. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so All much. Right. I appreciate it. and thank you for talking with me. I really appreciate it. Just no on the spot, but yeah. thank you. Uh, nice meeting you guys. Have a nice day. You too. It took some hunting, kicking leaves around, and even shaking some branches, but I did manage to find a few chestnuts. Often, when they fall from the tree, they're free from their spiky hull, and you can just grab the shiny brown nuts. But some of them were in their protective armor, and it was painful to try to free them with my bare hands. We ran into another forager, Hwasan, She's originally from South Korea, and she lives in Bloomington with her husband, Ricky. They came to the orchard for apples, but were thrilled to find the chestnut trees. Hwasan was impressed with my haul. Oh, yeah, she's a real good. Yeah, she showed us good. a trick for freeing the nuts from the prickly no. shell. It hurts. Oh, you just, I was using a stick see, you, and no, stepping on it. Yeah, it's just you open it like this. Okay, open it like this. Okay. Awesome. See? Look. Okay. You open it. Okay. Like this. Hwasan puts one foot on either side of the nut and works it back and forth to loosen the shell. Once the nut emerges, she reaches down and grabs it without getting stuck by the sharp spikes. I asked her how she prepares the chestnuts. Just the bottom here, just the slash, you know, just the skin. Skin slashy. Uh huh. Then, uh, then go to oven at uh, maybe f 400 degrees and uh, maybe 15, 20 minutes. If you bake, then you can eat. You're ready okay, to so eat. Okay, so you just roast them? Yeah, I roast. You don't yeah. cook them any other uh -uh, way? Uh -uh. Okay. She says if the shell is too tough to cut, she boils them, peels them, and eats them plain. In South Korea, they're sold roasted as street food, but at home, she says people usually boil them. She says they're a popular food for the Korean Thanksgiving, which takes place around the time of the autumn equinox. As we were leaving, there was some question about whose chestnut stash was whose. This is yours? Oh, this is her. That's yours. Are this yours? 
I don't or know. Is this hers? This is mine. This little. I, I think it is mine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because mine had the light ones in it. Yeah, this is mine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still wondering if Poisson accidentally ended up with my hard-won treasure. But by the time we got up to pay, it didn't matter. There was extra at the table for purchase. Apparently, when Lenine brought her haul to be weighed, the price per pound was too high for her. She'd seen them cheaper at the store. Uh, yeah, 12 pounds. Yeah, so it's pretty good. Uh, I saw their setting is for cheaper, but their setting is more expensive, so I just decided I'd just go to the store kind of. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, but I had fun here, so yeah. Yeah, it was, it was fun picking them. She just walked away. Julia and I could not believe it. I bought a couple of her pounds to supplement my meager collection. And like Lenine, I too had fun at the Chestnut Grove. After a short break, we'll talk with Julia Valiant and her colleague Olivia Shoemaker about their research on tree nut crops in Indiana. Stay with us. tuning into this winter holiday special from Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Next, we have a conversation about Midwestern tree nut crops with a focus on that seasonal favorite, chestnuts. I'm talking with researchers Julia Valiant and Olivia Shoemaker. I asked Julia to tell the story of how she first got interested in nut crops and what her vision is for the future of tree nuts in Indiana. Yeah, years ago I heard about some research that I think was led by the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, where they did this big analysis looking at the agricultural land of planet Earth and looking at all the land we have put right now to annual staples such as soybeans and corn, and to a lesser extent wheat. And their analysis looked at what could we be raising nutritionally on this land if we were to instead put it to raising chestnuts and hazelnuts? Could we raise as much protein and could we raise as much fat and could we raise as many calories and carbohydrates as we do now? And I recall the answer being yes. In fact, we can raise more. We can feed the world better through these perennial staple tree crops than we're managing to feed the world now through soybeans and corn and wheat, which have really harsh environmental consequences as well as nutritional and ecological. And so that has stayed with me over the years as an inspiring story. And then just from starting to learn from the members of the Indiana Nut and Fruit Growers Association about the work they're doing and the work they'd like to see happen in Indiana, we were able to put together an idea for a project which the Indiana State Department of Agriculture decided to fund to take stock of what's happening around Indiana now with tree nuts and learn what the next steps are in encouraging more growers and landowners to get into raising these tree crops. I mean, immediately what I think of is when I think of converting row crops to tree crops, I think of the time. 
I think of how long it takes for a tree to bear fruit or nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. People have estimated the number of years you need to wait before the trees are bearing. And depending on how you approach it, whether you graft the tree or just wait for the rootstock to start bearing, it's five years, six years, 10 years. And certainly our incentive mechanisms in agriculture right now are not set up to support people through that long-term transition. So there there are calls by leaders in this conversation to establish more ways to help people to invest in producing perennial crops on their farms. And then there are other ways in which investors who would like to support agricultural transitions to organic or to perennial can invest in helping farmers and landowners to transition what their land is raising over time. Sort of like venture capitalism or having outside investors in your operation. I've heard it referred to as patient patient capital uh-huh. or patient investment, like it's going to take some time to... Yeah. Or loan mechanisms that where you, a farmer can borrow money and there are no expectations for payback to begin at all until several years down the road. Okay. And the interest is not accruing in that time. So, you know, novel mechanisms for how to help people make that leap. We were excited to get to go visit a pecan orchard down near the Ohio River that was planted in 1940. So it was so beautiful, these 80-year-old pecan trees swaying over us and these goats grazing through them. And lots of conversations around the promise of pecans for Indiana. There are varieties now that really can do commercially well here. Lots of claims about how much money you can earn off of pecans. Lots of rumors but I feel like our research has kind of gone around and, and like dis- dispelled rumors one by one <laughs> about the promise of pecans. Like we heard about a pecan farmer in Illinois who really does have this great commercial pecan operation where they crack and shell and um, process the pecans on their farm. They have this great farm store and they vend all over the, all over the state. And we had heard that he was very systematically taking land out of soybeans and corn every year and putting it to pecan trees because that was working out for him economically. We had heard this from a few people. Yeah, we kind of your dream come true. Exactly. So we, like, drive to (laughs) Illinois to get this story. He's not doing that. He is not doing that. He tried it once. Um, converted, I think maybe an acre patch, and now it's like his test plot, but it's not what he uses for production. Okay. And what he's doing and there he's, is he's taking woodlots, because they have a lot of native growing pecans there, oh. over by St. Louis near the Mississippi River, and he's managing them for pecans, so he's cutting out other trees and creating more favorable conditions for the pecan trees to grow in. I see. That's what he's mainly doing. 
you know, partially because he's so bought into producing commodity soybeans and corn because he is also an established row crop farmer. Right. And has invested his career in that. And it's hard to make the shift from letting go of your investment in that and investing in a different production system. Yeah, that makes sense. We met another woman who has really taken over in stewarding her grandfather's land on which he grew for hobby for a long time. And she has this vision and has really taken the steps in connecting with local retailers, cafes, and restaurants who want to buy pecans from them and who want to sell them. But they've run into another bottleneck, which is that they don't want to do the work of breaking the nuts out of their shells. And so what those co-ops have to offer is shared machinery. Mm-hmm so that people on both sides win and that you don't have to say no to these opportunities because you would have access to the technology that you need and things could work a lot more smoothly. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. What about tree crops and water usage? When I imagine sort of a forest, you know, like the pecan forest that you were talking about that's something that's already established but when I think about almond farming Mm -hmm. in the Central Valley of California Mm -hmm. I think oh my gosh that's using a huge amount of water and I've heard I've just been hearing about that so is there any we have in terms of getting trees established especially we haven't heard anybody talk about irrigation or the demand the trees demand for water they have described their management approaches, and I can't think of anyone who's talked about watering. I can't. They're talking about mowing. They're talking about spraying. They're talking about pruning. They're talking about harvesting. With Indiana's 40-some inches of rain yeah. that we get every year. <laughs> yeah, we're not the Central Valley, are we? <laughs> no. Of all of the places we've been to, I don't think I've seen one irrigation system set up which is also another beautiful thing about perennials that have been established for a long time. When they're not intensively managed, like maybe 1,000-acre almond farms are in California, their roots go really deeply and have this really beautiful ability to bring up nutrients and water from the soil that has been building for a long time, especially in diversified systems. Yeah. We wrapped up our conversation by talking about the long-term vision that's required when thinking about planting tree crops. You have to be thinking beyond yourself to plant an outgrowth, I think. Definitely. And you also have to just start, because if you wait and contemplate it, you're missing precious time. So I've heard a few growers say like, okay, I just had to dive in and do it and stop thinking about it. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for coming in to talk with me about this. You're so welcome, Kate. Thanks for having us here. I've been speaking with Julia Valiant and Olivia Shoemaker about their nut tree research with the Sustainable Food Systems Science Group at Indiana University. I was excited about experimenting with the chestnuts I brought home. I roasted them in my oven, not on an open fire. And I noticed that if they spent too long in the oven, they turned hard as rocks when they cooled. It must have something to do with their sugar content. So I quickly chopped up one batch before they cooled with the intention of grinding them into flour, 
which I eventually did in our spice grinder, which is actually a repurposed coffee grinder. I ended up damaging the blades. That's how hard the roasted chestnuts are. I made a batch of thin cookies following a Linzer recipe and substituting chestnut flour in place of the almond flour. They were tasty, but I realized after the fact that I should have either ground the flour finer or sifted it before baking with it. There were a few bits in the cookies that I feared could break a tooth. We started referring to them as tooth crackers. But the flour did have a nice, distinctive, sweet flavor. Check out all the information about tree nuts in Indiana on the Sustainable Food Systems website. We have a link at eartheats.org, where you can also find more recipe ideas for chestnuts. Still to come, hot coffee in the great outdoors, and a toasty maple granola recipe that's easy as pie. I mean, it's a lot easier than pie. Stay with us. several bikes for different yeah. applications. <laughs> Have you ever heard of coffeeuring? What about coffee outside? My guest this week, River Bailey, is going to fill us in on the trend. In fact, he's taking us along for the ride. We met up at River's place on the north side of Indianapolis. He lives with his wife and daughter in a lovely neighborhood of winding roads, mature trees, and handsome mid-century ranch dwellings. We snake through the neighborhood, cut between two houses to find a trail through a patch of woods. A trail littered with golf ball-sized walnuts, I might add. Tricky to navigate on a bike if you're, well, basically if you're me and you're not used to trail riding in the first place. But I manage. It's a shortcut that lets us avoid some busy roads. We still end up crossing two major roadways before we turn onto the Monon Trail heading south. The Monon is a 27-mile path that follows a former section of the Chicago, Indianapolis, and Louisville Railway. The Rails to Trails path runs from the town of Sheridan in the north, south through Carmel, Broad Ripple, and into downtown Indianapolis. It's smooth sailing once we hit the Monon. And on this November afternoon, the trail is lined with the colors of an Indiana autumn. The air is crisp and we definitely need gloves, but all in all, it's a great day for a ride. After a couple of miles of easy cycling, we cross the White River, then turn off the trail into a quiet park. We stop at a couple of wooden benches arranged to look out over the river. The woods along the bank are flecked in shades of gold and brown. We are here so that River can show me his coffee outside routine. I'm River Bailey, a biking enthusiast and coffee-making outside person. He pulls a stylish boxy bag from the wire basket attached to the front of his bike. 
a walled basket, I later learned. They have a following. Three different devices, coffee-making devices. And I brought a cup for you and a cup for me. This is one of the things we could use called an AeroPress. Kind of a trendy little coffee-making device for a single cup of coffee nowadays. And I think we'll do pour-overs. This particular pour-over is called a Helix. It just folds flat and then you'll see it expands like so. Oh, that's nice. So it's like the cone for yeah, a cone Melita or something, but yeah. it's really compact and lightweight. Yep. It's made of wire and it collapses. This is our stove, which is just a little pocket rocket. Here's our kettle. traditionally used for camping. Mostly they're titanium for backpacking and stuff. It's a little titanium kettle and cups. You could use anything though. It doesn't have to be titanium. And this little pocket rocket stove is really awesome. It just also collapses as you can see and then expands. And then you just screw it on top of your fuel can canister. The type of fuel for this camping stove is called isopro. It's a blend of isobutane and propane and it comes in a squat so canister that connects directly to the tiny stove piece. He's got a small kettle full of water and the camp stove is assembled. Then, right. so you don't need a lighter. Got this thing. This okay, so like it a, looks like a little key almost. Yeah, and it's just a, a fire starter. It's just a little... Like a metal and flint kind yeah. of thing. So for coffee outside, just like coffee inside, at home, the coffee is up to you. Bring your favorite roast and grind it just before you leave, or bring a portable hand grinder if you must. So that one was like a Helix. It's a pour-over device, and then this is also a pour-over device, but the nice thing about this little GSI clip-on, it's got a name, clip-on pour-over, is that it does, you don't have to use a filter, it's just built in. You can just rinse it out. Just put some inside of your cup, like so. You like strong coffee? Yes. Lots of people do this coffee outside thing. It's kind of trendy now, I think, especially on bikes. I think some people call it coffineering, which is a funny name for it. Um, you don't have to, have to do it when you're biking, obviously. I mean, the other day I took a hike with a friend and brought all this stuff in a backpack, and we just made coffee outside for us, and that was nice too. But I like coffee and I like biking, so combine the two, and it's a win for me. For me, I feel like it, it makes almost a destination out of it, out of the ride. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I like to do it midway, midway through the ride too, so that the coffee kicks in, I guess, instead of just at the beginning or at the end. But this location is really nice. It's just a good place to reflect and meditate and just kind of get away from the city. Even though you're in the middle of the city, you don't really feel like it. It's on the White River. It's in a little park in uh, Broad Ripple. And there's benches and leaves and trees. It's under a weeping willow tree, which is really nice. It's just really picturesque. The river's just, right now, I mean, it's just gently flowing and there's some ripples, little whitewater ripples down to the left. So the best way to tell this is done on this kettle is just basically, I just watch for the 
the condensation and the steam to start coming out of the spout. It doesn't whistle or anything. I think it's kind of starting to steam a little bit out there. Yeah, we'll give it a shot. That's probably hot enough. So this one, this this particular pour-over one is the one that doesn't have a paper filter. So it, the coffee runs through faster, which doesn't seem like a good thing, but it still tastes really good. You just want to pour it slowly in a circular motion. I've yep. never been a barista or anything like that, but just from what I've read and seen. It looks hot. Yeah, it's certainly steaming. And these are double-walled uh, titanium cups, so they won't burn your hands either. You can hold them and... Yeah, this might be just enough water, actually. All right. I brought my own half and half because I oh, <laughs> really... one of those. Yep, I really gotcha. don't enjoy coffee without it. <laughs> oh, yeah, that looks good. Oh, yeah, the temperature's great. Isn't it? Yeah, it's really good. I'm usually not a sipper. I did that for the, for the <laughs> microphone. My dad, on the other hand, is a sipper. He sips everything. Just... Right. Cheers. Yeah, that's nice. Decent, huh? Yeah. Coffee is probably my one of my favorite things about camping. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know why I've never really thought to bring coffee out on a hike, you know, coffee making supplies out on a hike. I, I sometimes bring it when we're commuting and traveling. Uh, you know, instead of stopping at a coffee shop or something, I'll just have it in the back of the car and make it. And yeah, I'm always pretty coffee self-sufficient when I travel. Yeah. Like I bring my own Me too. setup. <laughs> oh yeah, this is great. And if I have time, uh, a lot of times I'll stop at a, like a bakery or something and bring along a pastry or something to go with it and just to make the event a little bit more special. Yeah. And there's, there is a group up here in Indianapolis that I think it's Indianapolis Coffee Outside or something, but I've met with them a few times and had coffee uh, outside with the group. So it's, it's organized. I think they do it once a month, all year round. But uh, it's been kind of a solo thing for me. So you spend a lot of time outside. Is it usually biking somewhere? Usually, yeah, not always. We also do a lot of hiking and uh, camping, but if I can combine biking with hiking and camping, uh, then it's it's a win because uh, I really like enjoy riding my bike. So would you say that some of your interest in in doing coffee outside or even just camping and outdoor stuff is, uh, do you like gear? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say I, you probably noticed it while you asked that question. That I'm definitely a, a gearhead. Uh, I'm always looking at for another piece. I mean, there's three different coffee-making devices right here, and at home we have even more. And I'm always looking for new bags for biking and bikes. You know, you can only ride one at a time, but <laughs> I do like having choices. I follow a lot of people, I think, on Instagram that test gear and do things like that, so I could be fun to get into that yeah that would be dreamy yeah yeah I think so too okay so let's let's go through all of the things that you have to have so water is definitely an essential and coffee and then and a stove you definitely want to have your stove and your fuel sometimes I've gotten out here and forgotten my fuel and some kind of device to light it so whether it's a lighter or this little uh, fire starter stick thing and then a pot to 
boil the water in, and then you want just something to make your coffee, whether it's a pour over or... These aero presses are really popular. You can't get much more simple than just a simple pour over then. Yeah, uh, yeah then pour over is definitely my favorite method at this moment. If you're really hardcore, you know, you bring, you bring the whole beans and <laughs> put your beans in here and use this little burr grinder. And, and then the coffee just comes down into here. Yeah, and then if you're me, you would have to bring your little jar of half and half. But the cup is also pretty important. One time I did I also forgot my cup and I tried to make a pour over with like a plastic bottle that I found, which is kind of gross, but the bottle seemed pretty clean. So, but it didn't work. It, it, it worked, but it blew over when I was trying to make it. And I was trying to take a picture of, of it while I was making it, but to prove how clever I was being <laughs> and that it, it didn't work out. But I, I confessed in the post that I made that it didn't go as smoothly as it all looks in the photos. Well, wow, that was a very good cup of coffee, and this is definitely the perfect day for it. So there you go. Coffee outside. Grab your coffee and your gear before you head out on your next ride or hike. Find a sweet spot and brew yourself a cup. It's especially nice in chilly weather. Enjoy. A little clips for the bag. I just these clips are made just so that the bag won't bounce out. And it's, oh, you just snap right so on. it is made for it's literally this made spike for this basket. basket. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Check our website to find River Bailey's checklist for everything you need to make your own coffee outside. EarthEats.org. Be sure to look for us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook and Twitter and on Instagram at EarthEats. So much of my holiday baking traditions involves sweets. Cookies and candy, mostly. But for years, I've also included a granola recipe, and it's always a big hit. This is a very simple granola recipe. You can customize it to your taste. It makes a great gift around the holidays. Start by preheating your oven to 250 while you mix up your ingredients. The first ingredient is oats, rolled oats, and you definitely want the old fashioned. You do not want to get the quick oats. You can also make this a gluten-free granola by making sure you purchase gluten-free oats. Not all of them are, but you can search for that gluten-free symbol on the container. So you want eight cups of rolled oats. The next ingredient is chopped nuts. You're gonna want a cup of chopped nuts and it can be whatever nuts you prefer. I, today I'm making it with pecan, but I often do it with almonds. And I, this is a rough chop. I really like to have nice big pieces of nuts in my granola. And you're gonna want one cup of chopped nuts. And then you just wanna mix those nuts in with the rolled oats. Now I mix up my oats and my nuts in one big baking sheet, uh, sort of a roasting pan kind of thing. It's just a big metal pan. I mix it all up in there so that I don't even have to dirty a bowl. And then we're gonna mix up the oil and the maple syrup. So it's one half cup of maple syrup and one half cup of oil. I'm using a sunflower oil. 
I mix this all up in one two cup measuring cup and then two or three generous squirts of honey and then one half teaspoon of salt. This is also the time where you can add other seasonings if you prefer. Some people really like cinnamon or nutmeg or cloves or allspice or any kind of spices that you think would be interesting or desirable in your granola. You're gonna mix up that oil and syrup together in the honey and get it really thoroughly mixed and then you're gonna pour that directly over the oats and the nuts. You want the syrup and the oil mixture to fully coat all of the oats and the nuts. Once the oats and the nuts are fully coated in the syrup and oil mixture, then it's ready to go into the oven. You're gonna wanna kinda shake it down to an even layer and then put it in the oven. And once you get your pan in the oven, set your timer for 15 minutes. And once your 15 minutes are up, you're gonna take it out and stir it. Put it back in the oven for another 15 minutes. Do that until it's a nice golden brown. And once your granola turns a deep golden brown, should be done in about hour, hour and 15 minutes. And before it cools, you wanna add your dried fruit if you're gonna be adding any. So that would be your raisins or your currants, or you can use dried cranberries, you could use chopped apricots, figs, whatever you prefer. I'll be using dried cranberries, and I think even the cranberries are a little bit too big, so I usually chop them up a little bit before I add them. And just mix the dried fruit into the hot granola and you're done. Just let it cool and you can store it in jars or airtight containers. Fill up a pint jar, put a ribbon on it, and it's a great holiday gift. Hopefully there's enough left for you. I enjoy this granola for breakfast with a dollop of plain yogurt and fresh berries or homemade jam. The recipe is on our website, eartheats.org. That's it for this winter holiday special. Listen to Earth Eats anytime on your favorite podcast app. One quick update before we go. Alyssa Weiss from The Cookie Baking Story no longer works with Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. The Earth Eats team includes Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Alexis Carvajal, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Daniela Richardson, Samantha Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Harvest Public Media. Earth Eats is produced and edited by me, Kate Young. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is Eric Bolstridge. Mm-hmm.